God is love. I want you to think for just a second about that person that you know that if somebody were to simply say, I'm not sure I know who you're talking about. Describe them to me. That your mind immediately would not go to their physical characteristics. Short, tall, light-complected, dark-complected. But immediately you would think about behavioral traits. I'm thinking about one lady that one time, and not in this community, this was years ago. In fact, it was a couple of communities ago. That I overheard a conversation, and the lady said, I'm not sure I know who you're talking about. And the immediate, was, so the immediate response was, you know, that old cranky lady that lives down the street. <laughs> Being known not by what we look like, maybe by not not by not even what we might profess to believe, but by a character description. I shared with you how as we were looking at this idea of the love of God this month that the one thing that is said in the Scriptures regarding the identity of God is that God is love. Now, do you remember as you were studying grammar coming up through school that what a sentence constructed with a verb to be was was either a sentence where the two words were in fact synonymous or it was descriptive. God is, Chauncey is father. Chauncey is, hopefully not, mean. God is love. John, as he was starting to write his little letter, the only thing he could say was, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Listen, anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. Verse 7 and verse 16 of 1 John 4. God is love. And if we are not loving people, the corollary is, is we don't know God and God doesn't know us. Now the first Sunday of the month, we talked about the extent of God's love. That when we really think about that verse with which so many of us are so familiar, have even memorized John 3.16, the focus is not so much on the way God showed His love as it is on the extent of that love. 
that he loved to such an extent that he was willing to give his one and only son. And scripturally speaking, the prototype for that in the minds of the Jewish nation had to go back to Abraham. When Abraham was called by God to take that son of promise, Isaac, take him up to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. Now, by that time, Isaac was a teenager. He knew what was going on. And can you imagine as they're continuing to go up that mount? And Abraham has already said, we're going up to sacrifice. He already turned and told the servants, we're going to make a sacrifice to God and then we'll return. He said, plural, we'll return. Somehow, I believe, Abraham believed God was going to somehow intervene, but yet he was going to be obedient. Can you imagine Isaac? Okay, okay, Dad, we're going to do a sacrifice. Where's the animal? Where's the sacrifice? What did Abraham respond? God will provide. Now that was a story that was a part of their intimate memory of the knowledge of their faith, their religion. And now John says that God loved the world to such an extent that He was willing to give His own Son. He was willing to provide the sacrifice. And not for the purpose of condemning the world. There are many people who are so quick to point fingers of judgment. I grew up in a family that was very legalistic, very judgmental. I struggle with that at times. God did not want us to be people who were standing on street corners with placards over our shoulders condemning people. You're lost. You're lost. What He wanted was us to be people on those corners with bowls of food, drinks of water, saying, come, let us help you. Get your needs met. Clothing, drink, food, visitation to those who are impoverished and imprisoned. The fact that God didn't want and didn't purpose condemnation, I think is seen in no other than in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul begins chapter 2 by saying, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Not synonyms. Four different ways in which we approach God in prayer. For kings and all who are in high positions. Sometimes that's not easy. It's not easy for me right now. I can pray for the office of the presidency. I can pray for our government. But I'm struggling with praying for the leader with the way that he behaves and some of the things that he is doing. 
kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. Not Jesus our Savior, God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. If no other verse in the Bible tells me that those who believe in double predestination are wrong, and what I mean by that is there are some who believe that God infinitely before time chose who was going to be saved and who was going to be lost and condemned. If there's no verse that contradicts that any more clearly, this verse does. God's desire, God's wish is that everybody would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. But do you know what? It's the one thing God wants that God's not going to get. Even though He's all-powerful. Even though He's all-loving. Because He has given us freedom. Freedom to choose. There are some people who are going to so belligerently and, and rebelliously choose their own selfish ways that they will reject God in the process. He won't reject them if they turn and come to Him. But they reject Him. Now last Sunday... As Jesse and I were celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary in the Smoky Mountains, uh, Van Haas graciously came, and, and I have no question that he did a great job explaining God's love for the lost, his love for the prodigal, the son who defiantly demanded his share of the inheritance and then wasted it on his own selfish desires. This, by the way, is a famous painting done by none other than Rembrandt titled The Return of the Prodigal Son. And in this painting, it's, it's easy to see the father and the son and probably the elder brother looking down sternly, but in the back there are others looking on because remember the father had had a party to welcome this son. The son, we're told in the story, when he came to his senses... He decided to go home not to be a son. He didn't expect to be a son again. He just wanted to be a servant in his father's house because they had things better than what that he did. But Jesus in the story tells us that God, as the father in the story, did something that no Jewish respectable man would do. <clears throat> he ran. Watching for that son to return, Jesus tells the story of how God ran to meet him and didn't take him back in as a servant, but placed the signet ring on his hand, placed sandals on his feet that none of the servants would wear in that time, put new clothes on him to signify who he was and the extent of that forgiveness. You see... God is love. Now, the image that I want to use as our focus this morning is one that represents eternal or everlasting love. If you look at it, it's, it's two hearts. Two hearts in which the colors blend into the other. And 
Because of the overlapping, there's no beginning and no end. Everlasting, eternal love. Our part is to believe in this love. Demonstrated in not only the death of His Son, but also in the life, the example that Jesus provided for us. <clears throat> to believe to such an extent that we are willing to make Him the Lord of our life. 24-7, 365. Not just expecting Him to be our Savior, but accepting Him as our King in terms of obedient submission. I will say it again. I will say it until the day I die if I have reason to. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if you do not allow Him to be the Lord of your life. It's not about what you want. It's about what God has said is best for us as recorded in his word. Now the text I've chosen for today comes from Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. He didn't start the church, but he was really longing to visit them. And one thing we need to remember is that this is a letter. It's not a summary of his doctrinal beliefs. And that's what a lot of people have taught through the years. It's a letter. There are a lot of important doctrines of the church that Paul doesn't even touch on in Romans. If he was doing it to be a systematic theology of who, what he believes, there's areas that got left out. He didn't do a very good job. But that's not what it is. It's a letter. It's a letter written to Christians who were struggling. Struggling with issues related to love. It was a church that was divided. There were Jews and there were non-Jews. And the historical setting is, is that one of the emperors had made all the Jews leave Rome. But by the time Paul was writing, they had been allowed to return. And so they're coming back into those churches. And there's a lot of issues regarding who's best, who's most important. Jews or non-Jews. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail today because guess what? Starting the first Sunday of September, and who knows how long, we are going to systematically work our way through the book of Romans. But today... I want to look at a passage that I think helps us understand the everlasting nature of God's love. So let's do so by digging in, first of all, to the text. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. What, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. What shall we say then? Paul introduces the nine verses that we just read with what's actually a concluding formula. And he already has used it, which we will see in the months to come, in chapter 6, verse 1, and 15, and in in chapter 7, verse 7. Three times he's already used the same formula. Chapter 8 begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A new position. And that's explained in the first eight verses of chapter 8. And the chapter ends, which we just read, with the fact that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in, in Jesus Christ. That is... In the light of his five convictions, five truths about God's providence that you can see in verse 28, that God is at work in our lives, at work for the good of his people, at work for our good in all things, at work for those who love him, and all of this for a purpose. And five affirmations that he makes involving God's providence developed in verses 29 to 30, just ahead of the text we read, where he talks about God's foreknowledge, God's eternal plan, our calling, our justification, and our glorification. Five truths, five affirmations, and now Paul comes to five questions. J.B. Phillips translates it, what is there left to say? I've given you five truths, five affirmations. What else is there to say? And Paul's answer to his own question, asking these five more questions, is that there really is no answer. The first of the questions... Oh, excuse me. I didn't finish reading that. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everlasting, eternal. And the first question that he asks is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if Paul had simply asked, who is against us, there would be an immediate barrage of things that we could answer. For those who are living the Christian life, 
We have many foes who are against us. What about the variety of hardships that he just listed in verse 35? Aren't they against us? And what about the unbelieving, persecuting world that's certainly opposed to us? There is currently new legislation being put before Congress to limit extensively the rights of Christians. Not other religions. I read one of them. The only religion mentioned is Christianity. No, Paul here uses a first-class conditional sentence. The essence of his question is contained in a two-letter word. If. If. If God is for us. Now, with a first-class conditional sentence, it's assumed. It could equally be translated, since God is for us. And we know He is. Then who of any significance can be against us? <coughs> you don't like me because I'm a Christian? Sorry. Oh well. You think I'm wrong because I'm standing up for my Christian beliefs? You think I'm a prude because I don't agree with that kind of behavior? I was, I was in a conversation. My wife was with me. I was in a conversation and I flatly said to the young couple, you, you might not want to continue the conversation because I'm going to be blatantly honest with you. You're talking about abortion and, and the negatives about it. You don't have to worry about it if you live the way the Bible says. If you're not involved in premarital sex, you don't have to worry about the dangers of getting pregnant. If you just obey God's Word, then those become moot issues. You might not want to listen to me because that's how I believe. That's okay. Who of any significance can be against us if God is for us? If we're standing up for what God has said, and what we are called to believe. The second thing that Paul asks is, in fact, how will He not also with Him, that is with Jesus Christ, graciously give us all things? Question number two is based on the fact that he begins, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Again, suppose Paul had simply asked, Will God not graciously give us all things? And in response, we might well have objected and, and given a vague answer because we, didn't, we do need many things, don't we? Some of them are difficult and hard to understand when we, when we don't get them. I have family members who are still struggling, very much so, with why my great nephew was not allowed to live. Why my grandson and granddaughter had to go through the death of a full-term baby that they wanted so much. 
How then can we possibly be sure that God will supply all of our needs? But you see, the way Paul phrases his question banishes those doubts. For he begins by pointing us to the cross. The God concerning whom we are asking our question, whether or not He'll give us all things, is the God who has already given us His Son. For God so loved the world, not how, but to such an extent that He gave His only begotten Son. You see, the cross is the guarantee of the continuing unfailing love and generosity of God. And so we come to the third question. If this is true, who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. This question and the next question, asking who will accuse and who will condemn us, bring us, at least by way of our imagination, into a court of law. Paul's argument is that no prosecution can succeed since God is our judge. And He's already justified those who love Him, who obey Him, and who have shown loyalty and belief in His Son. And that we can never be condemned since His Son, Jesus Christ, <coughs> excuse me, is our advocate. How would you like to go into court for something that you know you're guilty of? And Jesus is your lawyer. And the prosecuting attorney, who, by the way, isn't present in this, you don't see Paul talking about the devil, but the prosecuting attorney says, Why, on such and such a day, he did this and so. And Jesus says, Your Honor, I know I'm his attorney, but I already took care of that. I paid the price for it. Yeah, he, he, he knows he's guilty, but he's sorry he repented and, and I took care of that. You see the picture Paul's painting? We're in a courtroom. God's the judge and Jesus is our defender. And so, who can bring any charge against us? We can never be condemned. Because with Jesus as our advocate, He already died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He's seated at God's right hand. That's important. Because in that day, the one who sat on the right hand of the emperor was the one who executed the punishments. Jesus is sitting there on the right hand of God saying... No problem. I've got his name. I've got her name written right here in the book of life. It's been paid for. I read a story this week about a man who was very, very embarrassed by the fact that he had committed a driving offense. And when he got pulled over, he was looking all around, trying to make sure that nobody from his church had seen him. And convinced that he had done it without any witnesses, he took the court ticket, 
and he went down to the courthouse when the time came and he went in just to plead guilty and pay it and get it off and gone. And when he handed the ticket to the clerk, the clerk looked it up by number and said, this has already been paid. Imagine that. Thinking that nobody had seen, somebody had seen and paid that fine. And that's how it is with our lives. Thinking that nobody might know about a sin we've committed. God knows. God knows. But if we're willing to accept His Son, if we're willing to be obedient, that's a key word. He's forgiven us. Paul surely is echoing the words of the servant in Isaiah 50, just a couple chapters ahead of what you read for us today, Rich. Verses 8 and 9 where Isaiah says, He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who will condemn me? Which leads to the fourth question. And Paul moves toward the cross. Who is it that condemns? And he goes on to say, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. He's the one sitting in that position. And He's also interceding for us. Though He's the one that should be giving the punishments, though He's the one that should be condemning us, He's the one who's turning to the Father and saying, it's okay, Father, I've got this one. He's one of mine. It's okay, Father, let her... Pass through, she's one of mine. You see, in answer to the opening question as to who will condemn us, there are without doubt many who are wanting to. <coughs> Sometimes our own heart condemns us. It certainly tries to. And so do our critics, our detractors. And yes, all of the demons of hell I shared with Jake as we had come up out of the baptismal waters. I said, buddy, the battle's just now starting. And I haven't talked to him because we've been gone. But I guarantee you, Jake's got a story that he could tell me about the battles that started right after he made that decision to submit in obedience to baptism. But you know what? According to Paul here in this passage, their condemnations will fail. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. With a Savior who died, was raised, has been exalted, and is interceding, we should know that there is now no condemnation as the chapter begins. For all those who are united in Christ. But please... Please, don't ask me about Uncle Joe who never had anything to do with the church, but he was a good guy. 
one of the hardest things that I do in ministry is preach the funeral for someone who had nothing to do with the church. Why do those families even want a minister and a church type funeral service? Except that we all live in denial. We all want to believe that everybody's going to be saved, our family members, those that we love. But that's not what God's Word says. Jesus Himself said that the way to salvation is straight and narrow. Who is He that condemns? There will never be any answer. Which leads to the fifth and final question Paul asks. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now I hope by now you realize that we've been climbing a staircase, so to speak. Each building on the next. And with this fifth and final step, Paul himself now does what we've been trying to do with his other questions. He first asks, who will separate us from Christ's love? And then he kind of looks around for an answer. He brings forward a sample list of adversities and adversaries that might be thought of as coming between us and Christ's love. Trouble, hardship, persecution. Things that denote the pressures and the distresses caused by an ungodly and a hostile world. He goes on to famine or nakedness. Isn't it interesting since in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promised that the Heavenly Father would take care of His children by feeding them and clothing Him? Wouldn't their absence suggest that He in fact doesn't care? But Paul concludes his list with danger or sword, meaning perhaps the risk of death on the one hand and the experience of it on the other. Whether the sword be the final sword thrust of abandon or an enemy soldier or an executioner. You see, it has to do with a willingness for martyrdom. I don't want my family to have to experience persecution in any way, shape, or form. But I'm going to tell you right now, and very honestly, some of my family who are living outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ who are not involved in weekly worship if somehow they would be saved by my death, persecution and even torture God bring it on bring it on so that they can be saved Because I know in whom I believe. And I'm persuaded that He is able to keep me until that day. Paul goes back, Pat, and quotes from a psalm. It depicts the persecution of Israel by the nations. For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So what about these seven afflictions and others too, since the list could actually be considerably lengthened? They're all sufferings. 
No question about it. They're all unpleasant. They're demeaning. They're painful. They're hard to bear. They're challenges to our faith. And yet Paul knew that God never promised to keep us from them. In fact, if you're living the Christian life the way you're supposed to be living it, you will be persecuted. You will be made fun of. You will be harassed. That is the promise of Scripture. And the promise of God is that I will be with you. Those of us who have never had to suffer physically for Christ. Maybe we should perhaps read verses 35 to 39 alongside of verses 35 to 39 of Hebrews chapter 11. A list of unnamed people of faith who were tortured, jeered at, flogged, chained, stoned, and even sawed. Sawed in two and half. Faced with such heroism, there's no place for glibness or complacency. So Paul reaches his climax. He began with, we know. He ends more personally with, I'm convinced. And he deliberately uses the perfect tense, meaning I've become and I remain convinced for the conviction that he expresses is rational. It's settled. It's unalterable. He's asked questions whether anything will separate us from Christ's love. He now declares that nothing can do so. So my challenge for you this morning in closing is to remember what we do know. Let's go back to verse 28. In fact, let's go back to verse 26. We can know, according to what Paul has written in God's inspired Word, we can know, first of all, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He writes, for we don't know what to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You're hurting. You're troubled. You don't know how to put it into words. It's okay. Just go to your knees in prayer and say, Father, listen to your Spirit that lives within me. We also know, according to verse 27, that He searches hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because the Spirit is interceding for us as saints according to the will of God. And that is the context for verse 28. Don't come to me and say, oh, I'm sure everything will work out okay. Because Paul says in Romans 8.28, We all know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, they do work for good. But listen to me. That good might be painful. That good might be the loss of all things. I know people personally who never turned toward the Lord until they lost everything they had. All things do work 
for the good for those who love God. But that doesn't mean we're not going to have hardships, trials, afflictions, pains. But God's love, the love of God, is eternal and it's everlasting. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today once again thinking about the love that you have for us and how you have demonstrated that to us in setting forth a plan by which even though we fail, you are there as our judge, but also have provided us a defense attorney, Jesus, who has paid the price for us. If we are willing to turn to him and live in obedience submitting our wills to His will, submitting our selfish, self-centered desires and looking to others to serve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.